Well, good afternoon by about three minutes, I think. Yep. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a really very special occasion. You are part, you may not know this, but uh, you're about to know it. You're part of a historic moment. And that's not a thing that happens every day. Part of a historic moment in the life of the book festival in its 25th anniversary year. Um, I'm Catherine Lockerbie, I'm the director of the festival, and my team and I work pretty hard, my superb colleagues and I work pretty hard all year to create our literary extravaganza, which kind of brings the world to Scotland and presents Scottish writing to the world. And each year I award myself one special treat, and this is it. It's just many people have made this treat possible. I'd especially like to thank the Open University uh, for supporting this event and for supporting some of our other Scottish writing events. We share a kind of fundamental aim with the Open University about opening minds to new knowledge, new awareness throughout our lives. I'd like to extend a special welcome to our guests from the British Council. Uh, we promised you, these are delegates from all over the world, and we promised that we would showcase the best of contemporary Scottish writing, and believe me, uh, this is it. We um, wish to thank very much the Scottish Government, and more, more from the Scottish Government in just a moment. And uh, these guys have had something to do with it. Um, the writers, let's welcome them now. John Burnside, Don Patterson, Janice Galloway and A.L. Kennedy. Um, you have before you four extraordinary minds. I know they don't really look like it, but trust, trust, <laughs> trust me on this. And I, and I basically just went and, you know, knocked on their doors and said, hi, you know, would you like to drop everything and just produce some world-class work at incredibly short notice? And yeah, no bother. Um, so what we have today, what we're presenting to you today, are brand new stories and poems written specially for this occasion and published in this beautiful little book, Lights Off the Key. And I have to say just quickly that I have been personally and passionately committed to the work of all these four writers from pretty much the beginning of their respective careers. And what they've come up with for this book is a revelation, even to me who knows their work very, very well. In the autumn, they're going to visit Stavanger, the 2008 European capital of culture, and present the work there. It's all rather extraordinary. And I often say that our festival is in the business of making the impossible possible. None of this would have been possible without the active and enlightened support of the Scottish Government. And I'm delighted now to welcome the Minister for Europe, External Affairs and Culture, Linda Fabiani. Thank you very much, and thank you very much, Kathleen. Uh, um, I am absolutely delighted uh, to be here uh, in Charlotte Square Gardens. And it's funny how people's lives take turns for the many years of turning up at the festival. Um, you know, not every year, I'll admit, but dropping in over the years. All of a sudden, here I am, standing on the, the same platform as, as those who just epitomise everything that the book festival is about. And it's a fantastic honour. I have no doubt that this year will be a huge success. Um, Edinburgh's festivals generally attracting more and more international interest year by year. And this particular festival, we have authors from over 45 different countries this year. Uh, this Edinburgh Book Festival is a truly international event. And it's a hub not just for Scottish talent, uh, which is in abundance, uh, but of talent from all over the world. It's an excellent opportunity too to 
keep enhancing these relationships that we have the world over and engaging um, in all the difficult things that go on in the world. Uh, literature is one thing that transcends all these boundaries and whilst we keep engaging internationally in culture, art, literature, then I think the world will do okay. This particular magical tented village is a great place. Um, there's a real buzz about it when you come in and uh, it is a, a tented village and people are loving it. Smiles all over the place out there from the tiniest uh, to, the, to the oldest. I want to particularly thank Janice uh, Galloway, Alison Kennedy, Don Patterson and John Burnside for producing. It's a fantastic piece of contemporary uh, Scottish literature. Uh, I read it last night um, and I, I would love to tell you all about it but of course I can't because that's what they're here for. Um, it, it, it's just fabulous. For those who have read our four special authors before, you will be delighted and uh, for those who haven't read any of them, well, I absolutely believe make sure that you do from now on. So yes, uh, the government, Scottish government, absolutely um, committed to literature in Scotland and happy to have helped the book festival put this work together with support of about 32 and a half thousand pounds. Thus, the book festival was able to generate and commission this work. That uh, Edinburgh Festival's Expo Fund will deliver six million pounds over the next three years to support the creation of new work in Edinburgh's festivals. It's a positive step forward uh, for our creative sector and it'll help to maximise the opportunities for the work of Scottish artists to be showcased at the Edinburgh festivals, but of course beyond as well. And I, I now know uh, that we have been successful at the book festival in promoting that international by sending lights off the key over to Stavanger, uh, the European capital of culture 2008. And I hope it will go further. So everyone here today uh, has much in which to delight. And uh, it has been a real honor for me to be part of it and to join everyone here in keeping Scotland's stories al alive. So thank you for all your time. Thank you to our four authors and please enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, we're going to hear from the authors in the order in which they appear in the book. So we're starting with A.L. Kennedy on my right here. Now, if we named all the awards Alison has won, we'd actually be here until 2011, probably. Um, her stories and novels are acclaimed across the world. Uh, she's mobbed in the street in Germany, I think. Who is it they mistake you for? Yes. <laughs> David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it, okay? Her latest novel, Day, won one of the UK's premier uh, book awards, the Costa Award, formerly Whitbread, which is kind of up there with the booker. Um, she will be reading from and talking about that in her own event on Monday morning at 11.30. Something, 11 else. 30, something right. else, and something else too. Lots of other new things. Um, she, many of you will know, she's developed an alternative career as a stand-up comedian, which goes um, in interesting parallel to the writing, and in a, in a sort of, I, I think it's a sort of subtle expansionist imperialist move. She started <laughs> snapping up other countries' prizes too, and is fresh from winning the Austrian State Prize for European Literature, amongst other such accolades across the globe. And the well, I'm going to let Alison tell you about the story in this book of which you will have a tantalizing 
part. Alice, thanks. Okay, um, good afternoon. Uh, I won't insist on you participating. Because <laughs> that's the later show. Um, it's very nice to be here. It's, it's a, a, genuinely a privilege to be here on the same platform with um, the other writers and, and with Catherine. Catherine does such a fantastic job with the book festival and you know we all love her we all love the book festival and how it's come on and how it's this just fantastic shiny thing in uh, the cultural life of Scotland and as she hasn't had a round of applause for herself I think she should have one now And it's great to be in a room full of, you know, British Council people and people who care about literature. Um, an amazingly cheap form, which is just hugely penetrating and transformative and enlightening and just about the life of the heart and the mind. And if we let that die and don't fund it and don't put books in libraries and don't educate our children, um, hell mend us, really. Um, there's a choice. Um, because these story, the story is quite long, it's, it's 20 minutes long and I only have 10 minutes, part of which I've just used. Um, <laughs> either you can have the beginning bit, which might lead you to believe that there's a surprise happy ending, <laughs> however unlikely that might seem, or um, <laughs> it's like trick or treat, really. It's, um, or you can have you know, the, the, uh, the hideous dark conclusion. It just depends what mood <laughs> you're in. I'm, I'm quite up for, for either. Uh, End? Hideous end? Hideous end? No, 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 no. no. Nice beginning. Okay, we'll do nice beginning. It's far too early in the day for hideous end. Um, after, after nine is, is good. Get the book, get the end. So this is called marriage. Kind of know where that's going, don't you? <laughs> this isn't working, he can tell. Anybody would be able to tell. The fact of this not working is so very obvious that he can picture it forming a cloud, an area of staining somewhere in his brain, which will be exactly the colour of failure. Failure being, now he thinks about it, a mix of yellow and acid green, with maybe a touch of brown. Yes, there ought to be brown. Shit brown. Reconciliation, a merry stroll together, preparation for a fresh start to their night. None of this will happen, only the failure. There is a little rain, dusty, irritating, and more to come. The greyness overhead creeping into their clothes, their skin, while something bruised and potentially drenching gathers above and to his left. Since they passed the library, the threat of spiteful weather seems to have been tracking them, implausibly watchful. And her shoulders are already locked in that depressive-looking flinch away from him, the usual. So they won't have fun. They won't be happy. They won't chat. They will just walk, trudge on. She will ruin their afternoon. Her feet will continue to bang down with a rhythm that is not his own, that doesn't even seem quite hers. She will beat up ahead of him, striding out for that full yard of distance, keeping it wedged in between them. She likes making him study her back, a back which grows more eloquent the longer he stares at it. Currently, it is both wounded and resentful. In another half an hour, it will be martyred. <laughs> and she will be an icon of patient suffering. He realises he has already started shrugging at passers-by to offset her effects. 
any especially interested strangers are offered a little purse of the lips, a slight raising of his eyebrows, suggesting something along the lines of, my wife, you have to love her, eh? <laughs> well, I have to, anyway. She's temperamental, you might say, operatic. Still, we weather the storms. Oh, indeed we do, both of us. Here we are, weathering. Or sometimes he droops his head. The well-disciplined husband peers out at possibly like-minded gents. In the doghouse again, then? Silly me. A few streets ago, she raised her pace, and she's still rushing. She's not running, though. Nothing as frank and outgoing as that, and nothing casual or girlish. She won't break into a trot. She is a subtle woman, and has settled for a kind of driven scamper, because this will disturb him most. She is forcing her body to seem undefended, animal and draws him on behind her into a state of contagious despair. He feels himself caught in the movements of an anxious man, pursuing, pursued, escaping, arriving too late for essential but undefined assistance, losing support. Not that I ever am late. That's her trick. Punctual me. Punctual parents. That's what sets you right. Trained before you know it, and as a result, you're courteous. Whenever you're needed, you're already there. He folds his hands into his pockets, soft flannel lining, warm, the flannel there at his request. My request, my coat. It's consolation. The only piece of clothing that he's ever had made, bespoke, specifically cut and fitted for his shoulders, his arms, his back, the touch of it against him like a light embrace, something manly brotherly. She remarked on its cost at the time, of course, couldn't help herself. At least she'd looked at him and never even smiled while he told her about this amazing little old-fashioned shop he'd found and the bolts and bolts of tweed they had inside and the remarkable, genuinely surprising lack of expense about it all if you considered the work involved <laughs> and the fact that such an overcoat would last a lifetime, very easily a lifetime. She had simply shaken her head at him as if he'd been fooled, as if advantage had been taken which meant that he'd not had a chance to mention the tailor, his tailor. The pallid and serious face, the deft hands as they measured, the voice so very certain and precise as it rattled off a pattern of numbers to an assistant. His tailor had an assistant and marked out the code to record a form, to recall it and set it, everything about it snug. And he didn't, until later, make a point of describing the atmosphere of complete civility. Not fawning, nobody likes that. They just had a proper way of seeing. They saw me. I gave them my time, they studied, paused for thought, and then they understood the way I want to be, the way I really ought to be. They surprised me with myself. First fitting, and the man there in the mirror, he's wearing this big coat, long coat, something with personality, something to draw attention. He's standing well firmly, so the cloth hangs as it should. He doesn't fidget, doesn't have to. He meets my eyes. No staring, only confidence, interest, calm. I like him. I like myself, my better self, my better whole self. I'm not actually tall and striking, but they knew, the shop folk. They were sure I could carry it off, my coat didn't ask for any changes, only let them refine their work, 
chalk and pens and whispers, let them give me this one thing that is absolutely as it should be. Nice to be able to redefine what you deserve. While she scurries on ahead, he feels the coach clap at his shins, its weight pressing and cuddling around him. Serious weather shows it off to advantage, naturally. Breezes sleek it against him or flare it wide. Rain lets him turn up his collar, as he did when he stepped outside this morning, a part of his mind dipping quickly through into a finer, much more cinematic world of couples whose romances started on ocean liners or cross-country trains. Careless and witty people who solve mysteries, sing in nightclubs, only fight before falling much harder and deeper back into love. He and his wife were not falling. Not anywhere. Yep. Thank you very much, Alison. And anyone who knows A.L. Kennedy's work would be aware that uh, a happy ending would indeed be a surprise. And you need have no worries on that score with this particular story. Um, John Burnside is next. Now, John is um, a rather remarkable writer. He has, to date, uh, 10 collections of poetry, seven works of fiction, and a, a memoir, and is just about another, the second part of the memoir is, is due soon. So, a bit of a slacker, really, John. <laughs> he's, uh, he's won awards for all of them. And every year, when the, the sort of new literary year starts, I think, what astounding thing will John be offering us this year? Um, again, he's won many awards across the whole range of his work for the fiction, the non-fiction, and the poetry. Uh, John's doing various events at the book festival. And the next one is um, where he's been shortlisted for the James Tate Black Prizes presented by the University of Edinburgh at the book festival next Friday. And that's something we heartily commend uh, to those of you able to go along. Um, someone in Scotland on Sunday wrote that he writes with an almost preternatural acuity. And I think that's right across the whole of his prose and his poetry. And for this special project, Lights Off the Key, which is one of his own phrases, he's given us some amazing poetry, which we'll hear now. <clears throat> Hello. Actually, I'd like to confess that my real name is, is actually John Zagajewski with two Zs. And I changed it to Burnside in the hopes that everything would be alphabetical and I wouldn't have to follow a reading of that <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> I'll have to change my glasses, excuse me. Well, I changed my glasses. I just want to say thank you to Catherine Lockerbie. I don't know it's going to become a theme, but um, Catherine's support over the years has meant a huge amount to me, personally. This poem was um, conceived as an elegy for one person and ended up being an elegy for several people, really, including its author, who isn't quite dead yet, but, um, but felt as though he's beginning to join in with his subject um, halfway through. And at one point, I, um, I, was, I had to go to hospital because I, I had some... Uh, I was diagnosed with an illness, and um, they were scanning my uh, hands, and uh, one of some of the imagery from the, uh, in the poem 
comes from that, and it's an extraordinary thing. If you've had, ever had it done, there's modern scans. You can actually look at the inside of yourself. And it's kind of wonderful. You no longer have to cut yourself open to do so. Um, and uh, as I say, the imagery, a lot of the imagery comes from that, and I think it's it, uh, hopefully in some way reflects the, uh, the wonders of modern medicine as well as other things. But as I say, it's really about um, loss. And the person that it was originally conceived for, as an LG, would never have liked to have been named in, or identified in any way. So I decided in the end just to call it In Memoriam, um, which is a bit, a bit of hubris, really, um, as you all know, um, Tennyson's great poem. But I previously titled a poem Four Quartets and seemed to get away with it. <laughs> so look out for my next poem. It's called In Praise of Limestone. <laughs> This is in several parts. I'm just reading until my time runs out because I'm not quite sure what I can cover um, in the time. But I, it, it's in several parts. I just name the title as I go through. And the first one is called Abu de Souffle, um, Breath, Breathless. It's the title of a Godard movie. Not the Richard Gere movie, the, the, the genre Godard movie. Someone might call it ether, but for you, the light at the end of the tunnel is never quite air, and breath is a shape that sails out over the rooftops into the lights off the quay and the tethered yawls. Awake all night, as the lovers are awake in that Goddard film where everyone runs all the time, I think of you as fog or phosphorescence vanishing into the weft of the hospital linen BP and oxygen falling like notes on a scale, less song than resonance, less cry than chime. A mapped line in a field of iron filings, or how a lost room settles in the bone, pale as the fire in those cradles of horsehair and tallow we used to burn out at the salt pans on wet afternoons, currying in like ghosts to the gold of the flame and finding a home there, delicate, incomplete and perfect, like the gray scale in this film that sifts out your future and seals it in cirrus, then stone. Pain management. You never much cared for the angels walking their finery home in a borrowed light, ventriloquist, formal, drenched in the distance of heaven. But somewhere in the dark beyond the rain, crossing a meadow or bent to a flickering kill, the animal that matched you note for note would catch a scent and turn or lift its head to listen while this drizzle in the bone pursued its course. All night on the surgery ward, you were still playing catch on that strip of lamplight and grass between home and the rest of the world, the first rain turning to sleet on the pavements and hedges, the dog in your neighbor's garden barking at no one. Or else you were leaning in to the flicker and twitch of a dream you could never enter, hoping to catch the ghost of something feral in a slick of dew, or a ribbon of blood on a moonlit track, like the perfume of transit, that no man's land you find on the drive to an airport, say, 
or a Sunday excursion, a frontier of trees or a pond at the edge of a meadow where something you must have disturbed has hurried aside and left you a liverish stain in the yellowing grass, all feathers and teeth and a remnant of hallelujah. The third part's called when the mind is like a hall in which thought is like a voice speaking, the voice is always that of someone else, which is a quote from Wallace Stevens. In the clinic it came again of being a thing, like stealing away to that mare's nest of matchwood and straw in the scullery, seven years old and determined that nothing should perish illumined bone, immersed in the noir of x-ray, salvage and skein, deciphered in the scan until it seems your blood body is a gloss on something else. The secret creature, cradled in the skin, feeding on pain and sweetness, eldritch, angelic, a straggle of beak and feathers, an arm's length of gristle, and then you were finding it everywhere, wood pigeons, lavender, Rainwater pooled in the stump of sycamore, God in the details, perhaps, and perhaps the geometry of one thing, then another. Watching for spring, and the first warmth blown through the gorse on the road to the graveyard, blisters of yellowing bud and skin, and that knot in the bone uncurling. How the flesh betrays itself is something to be observed and then forgotten. Say these blossoms in the rain are tokens for the heart, if not the hand, countering loss with surrender, decay with gain, bloodroot and campion, clutches of thrift and narcissus, this evidence you found, then found again, rephrasing the heart in a ravel of swans down and webbing. A paradise of birds in a wash of static, finch in the bones of the hand of the smaller falcons, Curlew and Harrier, Godwit and Sacred Ibis, or here what remains of Iguana or Axolotl, sung from the cloud of a body that never felt as solid as it looked, interiors of maidenhair and fog where every night the hunter seeks its prey, the gone to ground of something in the heart you cannot name after the pig squeal and judder of untold love. In the stories they used to tell on mornings like this, a boy and his sister would walk out into the dark and never return. Or someone would find a knife in a wave of ash and cut the line that bound him to this world, a locked breath bobbing away in the April wind. How suddenly it seems the house falls still. Even the owls have stopped in the nether field and the cars on the coast road blur into wind and distance. Yet all night the stories return in altered form. A marriage falling open like a book and slow-coloured insects spilling across the floor. Or from the walls, an interrupted sound like someone thinking in an empty hall. From thought to song, from song to widowhood. A voice that is quiet and clear till you open the door. The last part's called Annunciation. In the stories they used to tell for the soon-to-be-dead, a woman comes in from the garden, 
shaking the snow from her coat in a lighted hall. The lamp on the kitchen table, a stored magnificat. The vase of poppy heads and winter sweets suspended like a missed annunciation and caught in the perfect lull between lost and found, her body becomes a footnote to itself, light as a feather, blood warm, utterly whole, and dry as the voice her grandmother kept in reserve for love songs and premonitions. And that's how it must have been when the daylight thickened and stalled on your hands and you put down the book you were reading to listen. No angel, of course, but you turned to the window, lightened with expectation, and something was there after all, the smell of the meadows, the last sun pooled in the beech hedge, and further away, the dog fox from down in the valley come up to hunt for mice in the first day of harvest, everything dusted with sweetness and flame from your bed to the edge of the town and beyond. On the coast road, a grey wind in from the sea to gather you home. No word, no enunciation, only the cool of it finding your lips and fingers and burrowing in for the sweetness that darkens the bone. Thank you. John, completely beautiful. Um, next, we have Janice Galloway. Uh, again, Janice works across genres, short stories, novels, uh, some poetry. Janice has worked with artists and composers, the leading Scottish composer Sally Beamish, amongst others. Um, many of you will be familiar with her novels. Uh, her first novel made a huge impression when it was first published, The Trick is to Keep Breathing. Uh, her latest novel, Clara, won many, many awards. We have the incredible privilege of launching her new memoir, This Is Not About Me, at the festival next Saturday. It's a mesmerizing account of growing up in salt coats up to age 11. And you could just, you can smell the salt in the air and feel the scratch of those woolly cardigans that we used to have to wear. Um, that's next Saturday, and again, I would heartily commend that to anyone who's here. Um, the Observer said of Janice that she writes sentences blazing with light, a gorgeous draft of terror, which I think is exactly right. And she's written a beautiful story for this collection, which we'll now hear from Janice. <clears throat> Hello, Edinburgh. I don't see why I shouldn't say thank you to Catherine as well. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to show you this for advertising purposes, because you hit a certain age and you need the big print, okay? So I'm reading off this, but that's the book. And in common with Alison, uh, it sounds like, if you're listening to the two Scottish women writers who are on this platform today, there is no future for heterosexuality in this country. <laughs> As I have realized that Al Alison is giving a startling insight into a man's perspective walking along behind a woman, would you like the other side? <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of this, but I assure you my story likewise is 17 minutes long. It's too long to read in the time, so I'll read you uh, just, on, just over nine minutes of it, at least what I hope is just over nine minutes of it, and I assure you, once you've got these nine minutes, you're over the worst. 
So you can buy the book in full confidence that it gets better. So I'm the other way around. Charles. It's called Fine Day. I don't love you anymore. Her knees hurt and her head was racing. Go on, say it. He was sitting in front of the fire, its halo flickering behind his head, the cigarette between his fingers ghosting smoke over one eye. His mouth, however, stayed shut. It would be a relief, she thought, if he just spoke now, spat his intentions straight out for once, but he didn't. Spitting, even in private, wasn't Aidan's thing. It's okay for people to want different things, he said. His lips barely moved. It's okay. Sure, she said, it's hunky fucking dory. Don't be like that, he said. It's not like you. Oh, is he not? No. His face looked soft in the dim light, but his voice had an edge. It was in no mood to argue. Catherine swallowed and tried to control the panic in her chest. Catherine, he sighed. He was trying not to be exasperated. Cat. Cat. That was what he had called it in the early days, a persuasive, sex-loaded whisper. Hearing it now only made her shiver. People grow in different directions, he said, exhaling slowly. It's okay to change, to make a mature decision, he caught her eye, a mature decision to move on. That's the civilized approach. I see, she said. This is civilized, is it? But her voice cracked, sounded broken instead of withering, which meant he had the whip hand and they both knew it. Swear, weep, show weakness of any kind and the game was up. It was his teacher training, she supposed. Aidan could outmaneuver a class of 30 when he had to. He wasn't going to weaken now. He blew a smoke ring, poised as Lauren Bacall. Catherine watched the slow kiss of his breath and felt something with long, desperate fingers squirming in her neck. This hurt, this always hurt. Let's be reasonable, he said, his voice distant. It's not the 19th century. This kind of thing doesn't automatically classify people as moral failures anymore. He cleared his throat. People do it all the time, I know she said flat. It's not even called separation anymore, it's called moving on or redefining one's priorities or some other bullshit and it's all perfectly okay. She swallowed hard hoping to God she wouldn't cry. But is it okay when those people have children? Jesus God, he said. She had him knock back what was left of his whiskey. Get a grip, get a grip. At least she hadn't used the word selfish. The use of selfish made him walk out last time, three days with no word where he had gone. Mentioning their son was dragging Danny into it and high on the list of unsayables. Emotional blackmail, he called it, sometimes adding that as a teacher, he needed no lectures on child welfare from her. Not tonight, though. He just took another drag, his eyes unfocused. Catherine looked into the fire, wondering when she'd last checked the real effect coals, whether the jets needed servicing, why it was always her that wondered these things. All this being civilised was costing fortunes in metered units. Well, he said eventually. He was standing now, flexing his knees. I'll go for my stuff. 
Look, are you okay? For a dreadful moment, Katrin thought she would open her mouth and howl. Instead, she glared. She looked up at her husband and wished his ribcage would implode, just crushing on itself from awful, gut-wrenching pain. Say it, say it, she thought, her eyes searing. I don't love you anymore, just say it. Just break the fucking chain. After seven years, seven, of Aidan looking pained, so intricately, unspecifically pained, if she suggested anything so commonplace as talking about it. Five of them, the five since she had fallen pregnant in fact, spent in a groundhog day really of Aidan wandering off to reassess his needs or turn things over in his mind or his favourite to find his space. And all that time she had opted for wide births, patience and the doleful hope their son wouldn't learn something fucked up from the pair of them. Now here they were again. Nothing ventured, nothing won. Aidan rising to his feet and asking if she she was okay. I want to leave Catherine, or Danny needs more than this Catherine, or even tell you what Catherine, just count me out. They would be okay. They were not, however, on offer. Aidan sighed and dropped his gaze. I'll uh, get a cab then, he said. At least he was trying to draw it to a close. He stopped momentarily at the door, singling out a slim volume of Nietzsche from the bookshelf, slipping it into a pocket as though it was his. She heard him poke numbers into the hall phone and realised she didn't know that number. She had no idea where he was spending the night this time. This time, he hadn't said lots of things. A newspaper, probably pinched from the staff room, lay on the rug, its TV schedules in neat domestic columns. The word butterfly shone blackly up from the list. The opposite page showed some skinny celebrity showing off her six-month bump like a fashion accessory. Right then, his voice was pressingly close. He was right there when she turned, coat on, scarf knotted against the cold. I'll be off. He stubbed the last of the cigarette, making a concertina that glittered redly, refusing to go out. Then slowly, like a film loop, a grainy echo of a former age, he knelt back down and looked at her. His jaw was taut and perfect, lit with flame. Before she made a fool of herself, Catherine stood quickly and went out into the hallway. His black suitcase was already there, leaning against the wall, waiting. She noticed a corner of his best-dressed shirt edging out from under the lid, wondered helpless what on earth he needed that for, his dress shirt for crying out loud. Then a horn was sounding and Aidan hared in from the living room, almost colliding with her shoulder. Sorry, he said, the way you would to a stranger in a shopping mall, sorry. And he was reaching for the bag, straightening, taking a half step towards her as though he might offer an embrace before he changed his mind and opened the door. Catherine felt the cold knifing in as he paused on the top step, the sound of belting rain. His eyes moved from her mouth to her ear to her wedding ring. I love you, he said. He turned up his collar, preparing for the downpour, the waiting taxi. Don't you ever forget that. I really do. And the door banged. Shut. She took two cartons of apple juice, the kinds with straws from the fridge, 
packet of crisps, two wee boxes of raisins, slices of brown bread, sealed with peanut butter and cut into squares the size of postage stamps. No fresh, fresh fruit. They never had enough fresh fruit. But this would do. A midnight feast didn't have to be fancy. Last, she put a toy car into her pocket just in case and went upstairs. Danny's room was thick. The darkness filled with the soft purr of his sleeping breath. All she did for a moment was listen to it. Then something about her being there, a shift in the texture of the air made him wake. She heard the covers ruffle and knew he was sitting up in the pitch black, blinking, so warm you could cook eggs on him. He didn't speak, just reached out knowing she was there somehow, that she'd already be reaching back. She heard him rub his eyes, the little fist twisting against his cotton sleeve. All she had to do was lift. His little body was solid, dependable, the way it always was. She blew into his hair for the pleasure of hearing that snuffling noise he made, was sharing a joke, she thought, almost shocked. Whatever else he had to learn, tonight wasn't going to be the time. She winched Danny closer, taking his weight. You used to be an octopus after your bath, she said. Her voice was splitting. You waved your arms about like this. She flexed one of his elbows, making him flop like something filleted. His chest was smooth as an unripe plum. A boy was beginning to emerge from under the layers of baby fat. She stroked his ankle, his shin, the hard length of bone beneath. Milk did this, she thought. My breasts made bones, male bones. But Danny was wiggling now. He had no interest in her stories. She cupped the peachy handfuls of his bottom and squeezed. Okay, Danny, come on, it's just you and me. Where are we going, he said, rubbing his eyes. The opera, she said. We're going to the opera. Janice, an amazing story called Fine Day. Um, now we come to Don Patterson, a musician, editor, lecturer, but above all, poet supreme. Don is one of the finest poets I would contend at work anywhere. Uh, the prize judges agree with that. Again, he's won every major award going. Forward Prize, the Geoffrey Faber Prize, the Whitbread Poetry Prize, the T.S. Eliot Prize twice. Um, Don will be reading again tomorrow, I think, with, with Robin Robertson, um, which is kind of a dream team. Robin, who's in the audience today, I just want to say a quick word about because he is himself a remarkable poet, but also publisher of, has worked with all of these guys in different forms, publisher of John and formerly Janice and Alison, uh, also, Anne Enright, who just won the Booker. I think that's pretty uncannily impeccable literary taste, you would agree. And his own work is mesmerizing. If you're enjoying these authors, I really commend Robin Robertson's poetry to you as well, as I do Don's. Um, 
As with all of the authors, I've, I've just been astounded at the quality of the work they have brought to this project, Lights Off the Key, and we'll now hear Dom's poetry. Well, I'm not going to be the only guy not to thank Catherine. That would be ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, unpresumptuously speaking, on behalf of all Scottish writers, I don't know who it would be without you, Catherine. So. Um, you in the mood for 36 deathbed speeches? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Enhanced by the death rattle in my call. Um, it's a kind of funny form, uh, uh, this. It's a, it's a mixture of two Japanese forms, a renku, which is 36 poems long. It's kind of haikus alternating with wee couplets. Um, and, uh, I, and a form that's obsessed me for a long time, which is the Japanese deathbed zen haiku, which is, um, uh, no, really. Uh, and they're spoken by monks. We kind of obtain, you know, to these zen monks in their deathbeds. Uh, and the conceit here is that these are my 35 previous reincarnations uh, and their final uh, words. Just in case there's any Renku fascists in the audience, it does mention uh, you know, the moon and blossom, the, uh, the requisite number of times, you know, so it's, um, and all that stuff. But I'll just read them. <coughs> Excuse me. Renku, my last 35 deaths. Blossom snow. By noon, the pear tree stands in its white shadow. Just before I left the race, the old moon lost its human face. Aha, the zip for that idiot suit, and inside, zip. Just let me add my two cents worth to the dead weight of the earth. Every night is our last night, he'd say. No, not quite. Nothing stirs the old mill pond. The frog slips in without a sound. It wasn't death fogging the window, but my breath. If I had had a happier dream, this might have been a better poem. Get my koto. Its open strings have all the tunes I know. Here's your book back, world. Good story. I underlined a few things. Sorry. <laughs> Ma, maybe best a bite off scale today. It's my chest. Sing me that old silent song. That's the one. It's been so long. Attribute this blank look not to shut down but reboot. Repeat now, not plus one is all, but all less one, nothing at all. Born man, die God, what world would fashion such a fraud? The walls fly off, the ceilings, floors, I wish I'd known we'd been indoors. My puppeteer, Seems he forgot he had to be somewhere. Just then I heard my mother chide 
No more TV. Go play outside. At last, quiet heart. Eighty years we waited for one spare part. For years I watched the blossom fall. It didn't. I rose through it all. The cloud above the lake sinks down to kiss its twin. Then both are gone. Why are you crying? Honestly, you'd think someone was dying. Say he'd the look of a fly between the pages of a closing book. At least I leave the world I lost an ounce more real for one last ghost. What am I thinking? Look, this is hardly the time to quit drinking. As the wind a leaf across the floor, so time moved me. Now close the door. Listen to this. I finally found a cure for my tinnitus. <laughs> I came to pass, I came to pass, I went like frost upon the grass. Your arse needs whipping. I'm not myself. Yeah, well, the mask is slipping. All my life the moon kept pace. Tonight, I guess, I won the race. I know the deal, but I've nothing ready. Um, it's been real. Downcast, me, I'm overjoyed. It's my birthday in the void. Give me an hour, then look in the bird song, her eye star, the spring shower. I wrote these words upon the air just as my heartbeat writes me here. <coughs> and the second poem I'll read is um, the, the kind of uh, our proto version of this was uh, um, a, a couple I know in Kerry Muir, and they were getting married, and I asked them what they wanted, and they said, Right, it's a poem, and my heart sunk. Because I didn't do that sort of thing. Uh, but I couldn't very well say no. Um, so I did, and it wasn't very good. Um, so this was a kind of opportunity to, uh, to rewrite that. Um, very much, uh, I suppose, under the influence of what I would say is the, the great high watermark in Western dramatic art. I'm talking about, of course, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, so say we all. It's not funny. As I'm saying, there's really a hint of irony. But anyway, so it's the whole th I think is now recast as a conversation between uh, two aliens. Um, Quite like humans, um, very far away. Uh, and the woman is the only one that's talking any sense. Uh, and they're having a conversation about uh, distance and love. <coughs> and I've just about got time to read it. So it doesn't cut very well. Uh, the day. Life is no miracle. Its light flares up invisibly across the dark. The heart kicks off again where any rock can cup some heat and wet and hold it to its star. We are not chosen, just too far apart to know ourselves the commonplace we are, as precious only as the gold in the sea, nowhere and everywhere. So be assured that even in our own small galaxy there is another town whose today light won't reach a night of ours till Kiri Muir is nothing but a vein of hematite, 
where right now, to say hell is tall and dark, but still is like ourselves as makes no odds, push their wheeled contraptions through the park under the red leaf trees and the white birds. Last week, while skeptic of their laws and gods, they made them witness to their given word. They talk, as we do now, of the divide, but figure that who else should think of this might also find some warmth there and decide to set apart one minute of the day to dream across the parsecs, the abyss, a kind of cosmic solidarity. But it's still so sad, he says, think all of us as cut off as the living from the dead, it's the size that's all screwed up, the emptiness. She says, well, it's a miracle I found you in all this space and dust. He turns his head and smiles at the smile she recognised him through. I wasn't saying differently. It's just the biggest flashlight we could put together is a match struck in the wind out here. We're lost. I only meant there's no more we traversed than the space between us. The sun up there is no further. We're each of us a separate universe. We talk, make love, we sleep in the same bed. But no matter what we do, you can't be me. We only dream this place up in one head. Thanks for that. You're saying that because the bed's a light year wide, or might as well be, I'm even lonelier than I thought I was. No. Just that it's why we have this crap of souls and gods and ghosts and afterlives. Not to bridge eternity. Just the gap. She measures it from here to here. Tough call. Death or voodoo. Some alternatives. Well, there's one more, that you trust me with it all. The wind is rising slowly through the trees. The dark come and the first moon shows. They turn their lighter talk to what daft ceremonies the people of that star, he points to ours, might make, what songs and speeches they might learn, how they might dress for it, their hearts and flowers, and what signs they exchange as stars might do, their signals meeting in the empty bands to say, even in this nothingness, I found you. I was lucky in the timing of my birth. And they stare down at their own five-fingered hands and the rings that look like nothing on that earth. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Don. Ladies and gentlemen, at book festival events, it's our habit to have a question and answer session afterwards. But actually, I think these, these words have filled our hearts and minds so much, I think we should just let them resonate there, actually. And the questions and the conversation can happen in the signing tent, where we'll proceed in, in just a moment. I, I think you'll agree with me that this is just remarkable work. I mentioned earlier that um, these authors will be going to Stavanger as part of a sort of rich, genial exchange of, of Scottish artists sort of hopping back and forth across the North Sea this year. Um, this afternoon, we'll have a, a first-class um, array, <laughs> seven of them, uh, of, of Norwegian writers. John will be presenting them, and that's all part of this um, wonderful exchange that, that, that has been enabled by the Expo Fund. Um, so if you want a taste of Norwegian writing, then five o'clock this afternoon. 
I just want to mention that Gavin Wallace, the head of literature at the Scottish Arts Council, has written a fantastic kind of intellectually invigorating introduction to our little book, um, which kind of takes these gleaming jewels and places them in context, you know, places them in the, in the treasure chest of, of Scottish literature. And he quotes Dylan Thomas at one point to talking about a, a festival in Wales. He said, the only surprising thing about miracles, however small, is that they sometimes happen. Well, this is small. I think it's definitely miraculous. Um, the way it has happened is, I think, uh, I think a joy and just a cause for great heartening optimism on all of our parts. Um, this is remarkable art. It's been enabled by this fund. I want to say thank you to the Minister and the Scottish Government for their support, and to Linda Fabiani herself, who I know is a great lover of literature, for being with us today. Thank you to you all, but above all, thank you to our authors, A.L. Kennedy, Janice Galloway, Don Patterson, and John Burnside. Please come and get this small miracle for yourselves in the signing tent. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>